Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I've only seen her as Julia. <laughs> and that's okay. But man, my mind would be blown if, if she was ever to walk in and I just see Sarah as Sarah. That's Julia food stylist Christine Tobin talking about Sarah Lancashire, who plays Julia Child. Christine and her team were responsible for all the gorgeous food on the show. I'm so excited that Christine is joining us to share some behind-the-scenes details and tell us how Julia has influenced her life and career. Welcome to Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, the HBO Max original series inspired by the life of Julia Child. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, and each week I recap a new episode of Julia and chat with special guests about the making of the show and the cultural impact of our culinary icon. Before we talk to Christine, we'll check in with Janae Lamarck, who directed this episode, as well as episode five, and Julia producer and writer Emily Bensinger about their contributions to the series. So let's dish on the latest episode, the foie gras episode. Can you believe we're up to episode seven? That means only one episode left after this. C'est la vie, ma chérie. We're back on the set of The French Chef. Julia is making duck a l'orange, the exacting dish with its sweet and sour caramel sauce and an entire roast duck requires a lot of attention, and Julia is clearly flustered. I just utterly distracted. My mind kept wandering to my speech for the gala. What's diverting her attention? A speech she is scheduled to deliver at a public television gala in New York City. She and Avis go shoe shopping, while Alice runs through her black tie wardrobe options with her mother, who encourages her to be a little sexy. Besides, you have my legs. Let the people see them. She also pushes Alice to go on a blind date with the son of a family friend while she's in New York. Back at the child's, Julia rehearses her remarks. Paul, despite being sick, suggests a rewrite. I'm offering after-dinner remarks at the Waldorf. It's not a lecture at Harvard Hall. The French chef crew makes its way to New York City. Julia leaves Avis to tend to the sick Paul at the Pierre Hotel as she heads to lunch with her editor. Judith Jones, and Judith's boss, Blanche Knopf. Knopf being the publishing house responsible for mastering the art of French cooking, Julia's cookbook, which is selling like hotcakes, thanks to the French Chef TV show. But guess who doesn't watch the French Chef? Blanche Knopf. She is not a fan of television. Is anyone having flashbacks to Paul's TV tirade from episode one? TV is not the future. It's fleeting. And to think Julia was so excited about lunch at Lutece. She was finally going to try one of the famous French restaurant's signature dishes, foie gras with dark chocolate sauce and a bitter orange marmalade. Something is bitter, and it's not just the marmalade. Chef André Soltner, the real-life Alsatian chef who helmed Lutece for decades and was the man responsible for the foie gras dish, pays a visit to the table. Chef André is played by A.J. Shively. Uh, may I ask you a small favor, mon ami? Oh, yes, of course, anything. Let's leave the real cooking to the men, or I'll be out of a job, eh? La cuisine française is no place for a woman. 
Not even a French one. <laughs> Bientôt, Julia. It was truly an honor. Hmm. Check, s'il vous plaît. Russ, meanwhile, still looking to do work he considers more meaningful than the French chef, meets with Madeline Anderson, a trailblazing TV producer and one of the inspirations for Alice Neyman's character. They have espressos in Greenwich Village at Cafe Reggio, supposedly the first place in America to serve a cappuccino. Russ is eager to head down south to report on the civil rights movement. Madeline tells him to look in his own backyard. Boston is as segregated as Birmingham. Just go outside and turn on your camera. Tell the story of the deep north. Russ is embarrassed. Alice seems to be the only one having a great time in New York at the moment. In fact, she and her date, played by Tosin Moore and Fala, chat for so long that a waitress has to shoo them out at closing time. Isaac wants to see her again that very night. But Alice has the gala. Back at the plaza, Julia is inspired to rewrite her speech, and Judith, back at the office, takes her boss to task. Blanche Knopf will have none of this cookbook nonsense. Your legacy is Anne Frank, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Camus. You just won the National Book Award. Okay. You are the preeminent woman editor in the country. I have groomed you to be that. There is no one else like you except me. That makes you an example for all other women. And you cannot take your stature, this opportunity you have as a woman in this business and squander it editing cookbooks. Let someone else do that. Anyone else. You cannot. The French chef crew, dressed to the nines, arrive at the gala. Even Paul musters the strength to join them. Julia is introduced by Vaughn Meter, a real-life comic famous back in 1962 for impersonating President John F. Kennedy. Julia tells the audience that TV is a window to the most remarkable places, and the housewives she cooks for have endless horizons. Later, Julia bumps into Betty Friedan, played by Tracy Chimo Palero. Betty, as many of you know, is the real-life author of the book The Feminine Mystique. One of the country's leading feminists, she is not a fan of Julia's. A good meatloaf isn't enough anymore. Now women have to prepare meals worthy of the finest chefs and still leave time for the children in the laundry? You've nicely raised the bar on what it means to be a good wife to professional levels. Now, see here. And how can these women, who you have locked in the kitchen, possibly find time for anything else, let alone a career? Paul and Russ come to her defense, and Julia takes refuge on a couch in the lobby. A man named Fred asks to join her and attempts to cheer her up. Well, I like you. I like you just... The way you are. Okay, show of hands, listeners, how many of you knew that was Fred Rogers, who in just a few years would go on to star in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Fred is played here by Rob McClure. Julia, by the way, made a cameo on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in 1974 and cooked some spaghetti. Does Julia recover and have a snappy new day? Will Alice and Isaac make their mothers happy? Will Paul make a full recovery? We'll find out next week, but don't go anywhere. What's that? been here all this time. You're an angel, that's what you are. Yes, you are. And now, let's welcome to Dishing on Julia our first guests, Julia producer and writer Emily Bensinger and director Janae Lamarck. Emily and Janae, welcome to Dishing on Julia. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you. So great you. to be here. Emily, let's start with you. When did you first learn who Julia Child was? My husband and I were living in this small town in Texas, and we were big takeout restaurant people and there were just very few restaurants and nowhere to get takeout from. And so we started cooking and he 
watched, funnily enough, the, her omelet episode and he started making omelets and we had omelets for like three weeks straight. But he, <laughs> he got so good at it and he still, he, it's the only thing he can make, but he can make a really good French omelet. And that was the very first time I had seen Julia. And then I started cooking uh, while we were living in Texas and and I actually can't make an omelet, <laughs> but I never really, I don't have you to. You didn't need to make an exactly, omelet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that was one of the funniest things about reading the pilot. Totally related to Albert. <laughs> Janae, how about you? My husband uh, went to baking school and is an amazing baker. And I, and I think the first Valentine's Day we were together, I got him the book Baking with Julia, but then I, his name is Julian. So I just like added an N to the end. <laughs> on the cover of the book. And then I think beyond that, it was probably Julia and Julia. It was probably my next, the, the, the thing that I, the place where I learned probably the most about her before being on the show. Did you grow up in a foodie family? I grew up in a foodie family, but my mom was not a cook, but we love going to great restaurants and all of that. Like we're definitely foodies, but my husband is an incredible cook, an incredible baker, and I've learned a ton from him. And now my 14-year-old daughter also just went to baking school. So I'm the, everyone's, everyone's baking around town. Emily, what drew you to this project? I had uh, worked with Chris before, which is a pleasure. And when he had mentioned that I had an opportunity to maybe work on Julie, I jumped and I met Daniel and read the script. And it was, the script is so great. And uh, who wouldn't want to work on the show about Julia Child? Janae, how about you? Yeah, I had actually I had also worked with Chris before, although not directly. I did an episode of the reboot of Party of Five, which he was an EP on. I mean, what drew me to it is like I love working with HBO. I had never done a period piece before. Julia Child is just she just makes everything better. Like being around her is just life affirming and joyful and hopeful. And, and I think that that's definitely coming through in the show. Janae, as a director, I'm so curious what kind of preparation you do for a project like this. I approached it like, like I guess, any episode that I would direct in the sense that the first thing is to just know the script inside and out. And for me, what's most important is to really be clear on like what the, the character sort of arcs are in each scene and also what the emotional story of the episode is. Those things are like the most important to me. And then from then on, it's just listening to Emily, to Daniel, to Chris about what their intentions are and collaborating with um, the other department heads to try to tell that story, that emotional story that we that we are all talking about. And that can be through <laughs> through many things, production design, cinematography, costume design. So I, I just really enjoy collaborating with the different departments to sort of build it together. To me, it's all about the script. And Emily, since you're responsible for the script, or you're one of many people responsible <laughs> for the scripts, what kind of research or preparation do you do? I did a lot of reading for this project. I read Alex Prudhomme. I read I read a biography of James Beard because I ended up writing the episode where we meet James Beard, um, the man who ate too much. It's wonderful. And John Birdsall's book. Yeah, yeah, that's a great book. It's fantastic. And I watched a lot of The French Chef, which did not feel like research. And was this the first period piece that either of you had worked on? One of you said you'd never worked on a period piece before. 
I write a lot of period, but no one's ever made made them before. Oh, great. <laughs> so, period is so fun. Yes. <laughs> it is. Every day that, that I would get to work on the shooting days, it just, the cars, the costumes, the production design, just the purses, the bags, like it, it just it delighted me to no end. I'm so <laughs> mad I wasn't there. The oh, sets, this the time, costumes, next time. it all looks so gorgeous. Thank you. All right. So you mentioned that the writers aren't necessarily on set. So is that just one of the things you have to accept, Emily, no. when you're a writer? No, no. I, I was actually a special circumstance. Chris tends to have his writers on set producing their episodes, um, which is wonderful. I, I had just had a baby uh, oh. a few weeks before my episode was shooting. And so I did not go to set. But I was on Zoom for the production meetings and I got to speak with Janae and a lot of the actors almost every day. I think, I don't know if I made any sense on those oh, phone you calls. completely but. did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was shocked that she was able to function at the incredibly high level of <laughs> functioning at that moment. Because my brain, when I had, after I had babies, were just was just I don't remember dead. any of it. But dead. I mean, the baby, he was just like yeah. asleep yeah. the whole yeah. time. So Sure. Oh, sure. well, congratulations. It's, I guess, two babies, right? Yeah, yeah it babies. was very exciting. <laughs> but I do think that that's actually unique about Chris is that 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 he does want his writers on set producing their episode. He's very empowering as a showrunner, I would mm -hmm. say, and it's and more so than any other showrunner I've worked with in that regard. And I'm I, I'm also a writer, so I love that he treats the writers the way that he does. I think it's really special and, and great. It's very special. I hope more showrunners start doing it because it really, I think it's good for the show and it is so wonderful for the writers. Yeah, I mean, it's like also prep for becoming a showrunner because like you're, you're getting that onset experience mm -hmm. that otherwise you wouldn't get. Yeah, so and set is just cool. Yeah, that is cool. So cool to be there, and there's so much free food. I really missed out on the free food. <laughs> it's We're true. talking to Christine Tobin after we talk to the two oh, of you. Oh God, yes, That's Christine. Be great. Yes, this we she would share all of her creations because she would prep for the episodes and be trying things out, and and she would just bring you like beautiful little things. Every day that you were on the stage. Oh, so don't good. rub it in. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like if Julia two. were high school and you had a yearbook, Christine would have won uh, most popular. Oh, yes. <laughs> in the yearbook. Sure. Who, who would have gotten uh, most likely to succeed? I think I read that David Hyde Pierce was most likely to succeed in his high school yearbook. I mean, that totally tracks. It could have, me. it might have been most talented. I mean, it was probably most also, talented. That also tracks for me. Um, yeah. I mean, Emily, I love that you know that. Sarah Lancashire. I mean, yeah. <laughs> David Hyde Pierce. It's hard. Either I mean, who, how can you pick from uh, this group of people? I know. Like, <laughs> it's a lot of people at the top of their game. Yeah. <laughs> Janae, you mentioned that you are also a writer. Yeah. You've also been an actor. Yes. So I'm so curious, how how is it that directing has won out, or do you still hope to do all three throughout the course of your career? I don't hope to do all three. I I started as an actor just because, I, I you know, growing up I did theater, and, and it's when you're interested in film and television, actors are the face of it. <laughs> so it's like, that's the thing that I was first drawn to, but then... What I realized after being in L.A. and pursuing acting for a minute 
is that, uh, you know, I, I, I made this, I wrote a short film that I produced and I was in and I realized that I just highly preferred the writing and the producing of it to the acting in it. I was like, oh, what I really love is collaborating and building something with a team. Like, that's what I love. Being an actor can be a very solitary pursuit. And I just wasn't interested in that lifestyle. I just wanted to make things and I wanted to be in control of my own creativity, which is why I started doing screenwriting. And, and then I, I, I went to AFI and I studied screenwriting there. And yeah, and so I'm still doing that. I've, I've written and directed two movies and I'm I've written and directed a few episodes of television as well. And then I'm now hoping to make another feature soon. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Let's talk about episode seven because a lot happens here. The Betty Friedan scene is fascinating. And as I mentioned in the recap, Betty feels that Julia has set women back. And I would love to know, do you two agree? Disagree? Was that a fair assessment at the time? I think it was probably a, f- a fair assessment at, at the time, perhaps, I don't think it holds water now just because for me, being a true feminist means allowing women to have all of the options. I mean, I think what she's specifically calling Julia out on in episode seven, to me, I'm like, if that's what a woman wants to do, then let her do it. I think at the time there's this more radical view of like what it meant to break away from the patriarchy and you know what was happening in the 60s. And I think there's there's a lot more latitude in 2022. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we, when we were talking about that scene, we really wanted Betty Friedan's argument to be compelling. I don't disagree with what she was saying, but I think if you only look at people as symbols, then you're going to miss a lot. And what Julia ultimately is a symbol of is of forging your own path and that being a trailblazer and a groundbreaker and she was also a huge advocate for Planned Parenthood. I think if Betty Friedan saw her today, she would, they'd be friends. Maybe they wouldn't be friends, but maybe they would. But maybe they would. Hopefully yeah. Betty continued to evolve. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think. <laughs> Julia certainly evolved. Yeah. On a lot of topics. Yes. Mm-hmm. She did. And one of the wonderful things about her was that she was not afraid to change her mind and to say that she's changed her mind about things. She really was her own person. And I think. That's what the feminine mystique is about. It's about women getting to be their own people. I also want to talk about the wonderful back and forth with Avis and Paul. And Janae, <laughs> that must have been so much fun to direct. Tell us how that was, given that B.B. Newworth and David Hyde Pierce have so much history together. Well, 
I could honestly shoot an entire season of just the two of them in a hotel room hang bothering each other and hanging out and <laughs> talking. I mean, it was just so, so fun. And they have such an easy chemistry and a trust of one another that those days that we were shooting those scenes in 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 the hotel were just they were just magical they were so fun I mean my collaboration with both of them was really wonderful um David and I definitely shared a, a very special connection I was talking to Emily about that um on the way in uh I yes David and I really saw eye to eye as artists so that was really really fun he even called me on the weekend one time to tell me how much he liked working with me and no actor had like ever done that like and and it was just like it's david just such a good guy that you're like of course he called me on the weekend to tell me that he's amazing he's amazing and he really his connection with paul and what he brought to paul is just it's so easy to write paul off as all these different kinds of things. And David really made him a full person. And Paul Child was unbelievable. And I think David, he did so much research. He knew everything he knew about everything. Paul Child. Yes, he knew everything. Emily, who has it been the most fun to write for? Which character? That's such a hard question because they're all so fun. I think I, writing James Beard was a dream. I think I'd have to say James Beard. But Alice's, Alice's storyline is, I think, my favorite. Okay, then we have to talk about Mr. Rogers because he is also (laughs) in this episode, which is just absolutely the cherry on top. Why did you drop in Fred Rogers? Does anyone know where that came from? I'm going to defer to Emily on this one. (laughs) Um, I think just, you know, we're making a show about a giant of public television and you can't not talk about Fred Rogers if you're going to talk about public television. Yeah. And we all, everyone in the writer's room, you just say Mr. Rogers and everyone goes, you know, we all love him. Sort of like how people feel about Julia, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a similar feeling mm-hmm. of, of warmth when you think of them. And totally. I mean, it's, I think it's, I love the end of episode seven. It could be cheesy. The, the, and, and it's just so understated and elegant the way that they wrote it and the way that the actors performed it. And it was sort of exactly what <laughs> Julia needed in that, in that, in that moment. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just who wouldn't want that to happen to them when you're feeling your most blue. You end up sitting next to Fred Rogers. It's, yeah, that's what we were hoping for. And he tells you that he likes you mm-hmm. just the way that you are. Yes. I mean, that's what everybody wants to hear mm-hmm. pretty much every all the time, every mm-hmm. day, right? <laughs> and it also, I think the other thing that was great about adding him in is it does give some context for, I mean, he, he hadn't had his show yet. And... It just reminds you of how how early Julia was. I felt like Julia had her own personal Mr. Rogers neighborhood moment mm-hmm. right then and there. <laughs> yeah. I only learned this last year. Did you know that Julia was actually on Mr. Rogers? I did not. I don't think I knew that either. It is an interesting scene. I have to rewatch it, but she shows up and they make spaghetti and oh. you can find it on YouTube. <laughs> so just Google Julia I'm Child. I'm definitely going to Mr. Rogers. Yes. Home. And then I want to hear what you two think. After that, I should have sent you that as homework. (laughs) Any other favorite moments from episode seven? 
I can tell you mine. Yeah, to, yeah, go I, for it. I've you did such a good job with the Alice at the end, just that moment in the hotel lobby. Oh, with Isaac, yes. just that heart melt, you know. Oh, that was really fun. That's and it so was sweet. it was really exciting because I had worked with Tosin, the actor, before on another show and I had suggested him and then they ended up casting him and I just I love him. So I was so excited that it that it had worked out and it so romantic. So it was so romantic. It was so fun. And their diner scene also was, well, yeah. Yeah. That day on set was really hard. But the scene itself ended up coming out great. <laughs> you can't tell. It was like 100 degrees in that diner with no AC and everyone was wearing like sweaters. And, oh my God, I yeah, didn't know it was, that. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> well, their chemistry, it was great. Yes. <laughs> Last question for you two. If Julia were coming over for dinner, what would you make and who would you invite? I would just want to have Julia teach a bunch of my friends and I how to cook. My friends and me, yeah. Oh, that sounds like, that sounds Yeah, I would like never cook for her. I'm not I don't I'm not going yeah. <laughs> to I would want her to show me how to cook. And I think that's what she really loved. So I think I would just invite my closest friends, like my best girlfriends. And I have a friend named Steven who's a huge foodie. He's one of my best friends. It would just be very intimate. And I guess I'd probably make steak au poivre and mm. a really like wonderful salad with lots of herbs and colorful. And my husband makes pretzel challah and it's incredible. So I'm, we'd make that. I don't know. All right. Yes. Stop the presses. <laughs> pretzel challah. Yeah. How, how do we get our hands on that? He uses the real lie and everything. It's, wow. it's yeah, da the dangerous chemicals. Cool. Yeah, it's Fight cool. club. So, <laughs> this could be a really lucrative side hustle it's, for it you. Could, I really you. It could. It's, it's, it's Pretzel incredibly, hollow. it's just, so good. And then you just like use it for the rest of the week when it goes bad and make French toast and it's so good. I want to come to your Julia dinner. <laughs> okay, cool. You, can totally fun come. you definitely should come to the Julia dinner. Great. I'm inviting myself to your dream Julia dinner. <laughs> Thank you so much to Emily and Janae for joining us. Now, let's welcome our next guest, Julia food stylist, Christine Tobin. So you come from a family of Julia Child lovers. Your mom, your dad, everybody loved Julia. Tell us about the connection. My mom and my Nana lived with us, and she was the one immigrated from Sicily. So we were always a big culinary family with her and, and my Nana cooking. We would have priests over every Sunday. Priests over every Sunday. Oh, yes. And they really delighted in that. So we grew up with lots of company and family coming in from New York City because we had moved to Massachusetts when I was two. And then Julia Child's entrance into this, what was um, heavier into Sicilian cuisine or Italian cuisine and American cuisine, like it was him that really sort of gravitated towards watching Julia on WGBH, so PBS at that point. This is your dad. This is my dad. So growing up, watching PBS, you know, first you start with Mr. Rogers and mm -hmm. Sesame Street, and then you slowly sort of graduate into these other shows and sort of pay more attention to those programs. So like Painting with Bob Ross would come on, and then would come Julia Child and The French Chef. And my dad would sit with his, you know, stack of newspapers I would sit on the carpet and be drawing from Bob Ross, but then suddenly gravitate and sort of graduate into paying more attention to what Julia Child was doing. And then he would just like enjoy her and just have a smile from ear to ear while watching her. And it was 
mostly him in my family that would then cook from her cookbooks as a challenge. So his claim to fame was the Duck Larange. I mean, I could still taste it. And it's still to this day one of the greatest food stories of dad. I also love how PBS shaped you, Christine. Absolutely. I think if somebody asked me, like, pick three TV shows that would describe Christine Tobin, I would definitely say Sesame Street, Painting with Bob Ross, and Julia Child. You basically are all those shows in a blender, right? It totally makes total... There's so much making sense from this job and this experience that is going to... I'm going to take a lot of time to sort of, like, put pen to paper and write this stuff down because it is very strange... Not strange, but really magical how all those things in early age just sort of has kept breath with me and just sort of formed its its own life. Yeah, and, ho- and hopefully after this episode, people have really caught on to the fact that this entire series is a love letter. Well, it's a love letter to many things, but it's also a love letter to public television. Absolutely. Yeah. And I still, you know, I prefer watching now the the Masterpiece Theater drama series and the Sherlock's and you know, home series. And, you know, we had Dr. Zoom. Was it Dr. Zoom? No, Dr. Who. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're on Zoom, but the doctor we're was Dr. Who. But yes. Because that's all that was on back then. Once we were teenagers, and this is, you know, then we would watch the Creature Double feature and like wrestling. Then comes MTV, and then it's all over, you know, for a while. <laughs> did you still like Julia as a teenager? I did, but I think at that point, my interests were definitely more in visual art making. And back then... My parents always encouraged me to be an artist and, and work creatively. But in retrospect, had I been more in tune to my interest in Julia, and I think it was just more like it was so ingrained in, in our family interests and togetherness and the way we shared with our community, like our friends on the street or family, like it just was part of us, then something I thought that I could pursue as a career. You know, it was more of a hobby, you know, cooking. And I would pretend I was her bringing home the recipes from home economics or making salad. I was always in charge of making the salad at night times because we always had a salad at dinner. So I would just sit there and just in my head, like her voice was already part of my inner voice until I found my own voice, if that makes any sense. And Mm -hmm. I, I still hear her in my head and it hasn't really, she's always been there. Now, you've worked on a lot of cool jobs as a food stylist, but I would imagine it doesn't get any better than working on a Julia Child series. What went through your mind when you got the initial call? I thought leaving Little Women was the pinnacle and a full circle moment for me. You had worked on Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Mm -hmm. Beautiful movie. And then when I got off the phone with the producer of Julia, I definitely just hung the phone up and started heart palpitations. Not that I was scared or anything, but just like, this is even bigger. And what an honor. And I'm that they entrusted me to to give me a call. Just pure excitement. What kind of research did you do to prepare? I can't even imagine. So once I received the scripts, I just went right into highlighting and dissecting each script with each dish or restaurant scenario, and then started fleshing out outlines and, you know, what props we're going to need and what set dressing we will need. And it then carried on to, to recipe testing and development from my house before we had the soundstage built. I was just immediately, like, just wanting to get ahead on it because, I mean, it's just a big job. And I, I didn't want to fall behind on anything. So, and I was really excited. 
What is set dressing? Set dressers are those who bring, my needs are like, um, you know, what would be on the table scape. So platters and napkins and cloths and glasses. And then as props that will bring and source those items that an actor will actually touch. So a glass or a knife or the, the food itself. So I fall technically under the property department. How did the team decide what food or recipes would be shot for the series? You said you got the scripts and went through and highlighted it. Had much of the food been decided at that point, or did you have input? A lot of the food had been decided, hence the title for each episode is exactly how it was titled for each script. Hopefully everyone has noticed every episode is titled after a food. And hopefully everyone's making them at home to eat while you're watching the episode. I hope so, too. It was just about researching and practicing those steps and actions to to best illustrate with Sarah or for Sarah, for the director, as to what the beats are for each. Sarah Lancashire, who plays Julia. She's amazing. It's me who's designing and flushing out a menu or a tablescape of other foods that, frankly, I would want to eat that would make sense and be period correct and also celebrate those chefs and their legacy, like Joyce Chen, and going through her cookbook and cooking from it. I mean, it was awesome. And same with Lutes. I knew of Joyce Chen. I didn't know she actually had a Chinese restaurant in Cambridge starting in like 1958, 1959. Really remarkable. Super remarkable. People might not realize a lot of the restaurants are based on actual restaurants. The French restaurant they go to How about the San Francisco restaurant? Was that a real restaurant? As far as I know, I'm still wondering the same thing. It's a fictional restaurant. And the hardest part is is, it's James Beard who says, I'm taking you to my favorite restaurant. Well, then I reached out to food makers, like legends out in San Francisco. Like, I don't suppose you know who James James Beard's favorite restaurant. No one knows. And it wasn't until I had a two-hour conversation with Dory Greenspan, which pinch me. And I asked her and she said, no, well, the saying is, is his favorite restaurants were the ones that welcomed him in. He just loved food and he loved celebrating it and loved sharing it similar to Julia. So in this case, it was a restaurant named Fable and it was scripted as being a farm to table restaurant and really having to research that as far as that period goes. And, you know, here we are in Today's time where that is the norm, slow food, farm to table. I did then just focus on Chez Panisse and the legacy of Alice Waters and was really careful about it because I didn't want to mirror it completely because it wouldn't be really period correct, but just sort of have her as a source of inspiration for some of the items that you see on the table. And it was a beautiful table. Because I'm such a big fan of yours, and I knew how much work you had put into each of these scenes. I loved the restaurant scenes, and I was constantly pausing, looking for, like, little Easter eggs or clues you might have dropped on each table. And for the San Francisco one, I was like, oh, I want to figure out what what restaurant this is based on. And I kept pausing, and there was a lot of bread on the table. I thought maybe that was an homage to, you know, San Francisco sourdough. Did you do a bone marrow moment on the table? Yes. So it was it was great. I love designing tablescapes. It's like one of my favorite parts and elements of the job because you really play with colors and textures and so the robustness of certain dishes. So like that, the bone marrows, I don't even know if I, 
I have no idea how I thought of bone marrow, but I just wanted the height of it and the succulence of it. And of course, like James Beard is the one in the table who just went for it. Christian just starts slathering the marrow on, on toast. But the bread was, that is one piece that is a Chez Panisse uh, special. I don't want to, I guess it's specialty. It's like a, a cheese stuffed dough that is fire baked. So um, because of our location, we have that in the background. So it actually added the element of, of a background actor's action by pulling this bread out of the wood-burning stove. I don't know if anyone would pick up on it, but it was also just to make sense of the overall scope of the, of the space that they were in because there's so many, in case the camera was to hit the background and what was happening in the activity of the kitchen, just what would make sense of what would be in there at the table. We're getting super nerdy now. I even missed that, Christine. It's so well, I love nerding out, but you know we're so <laughs> lucky that when we were shooting Julia, it was in the middle of the summer, entering fall. So here in in Boston, I was able to to go to my happy place at Allen, you know this farm, Allendale Farm, and get the most beautiful tomatoes and gentle lettuces, and and really celebrate our local produce as Julia would. Christine, what is a gentle lettuce? Oh, like a butter lettuce. Okay. <laughs> Just those soft, you know, those really soft, delicate lettuces, like a bib lettuce. That's a lovely description. I did notice there's the scene in, I think it's episode six, when Simka and Julia are having yet another one of their fights. And Simka is trying to talk her into the cassoulet, and Julia is trying to talk her into bread. And there are the most beautiful tomatoes on the counter in Simka's house. And I was like, oh, I just love those details. I do too. I just always disappear to my little secret places. When there was a beat of quietness on set or a day that was just a prep day, and I would just say to my team, I'm just going to go to my happy places. And it would be the farm. It would be the Eastern European markets in Brookline for really specialty delicacies and meats and such, like depending on whatever scene was coming up or, you know, for something like the Joyce Chen Chinese food scene, going to the Asian markets in Quincy and Dorchester, which is just like so much fun anyways. And just sort of picking out and curating some of those items to flush out further. If you just pause it at the right time, you could probably see it because it, it goes by really fast. Was all the food real? It certainly seems like it was. All the food was real. It's always it happened to always be real and no one's ever asked me to do anything other than real. I am very intrigued with the idea of mold making and just from my sculpture background and my art, my art background. And, you know, I'm not afraid to do those things. It just is a totally different brain and would need a different space and timeline to make those things because, you know, I know in L.A. they have prop houses and New York, but here I... I'm just kind of a lone wolf. I have no idea. I'm just making up as I go. Your deal is real. My so. deal is real. I'm just making it up as I go, but I'm I'm open to whatever the the needs are. But when it comes to food in front of people, I that just freaks me out. I I much rather <laughs> have them want it and eat it and enjoy it because that's the natural reason why food should be there. Now people actually ate this food. I know a big thing with food stylists is food waste. And you did a lot to combat food waste on set. Tell us about that. Throughout the soundstage, we had a strict recycling program. But for us and our needs, we had someone come and, and collect our compost from the back of the building. And then we also had a, a communal fridge outside of the kitchen space. So 
cast and crew can come by and sometimes if there's just a head of lettuce that and it's a Friday and no one's taking, you know, someone could take it home or take home that gentle lettuce, all the gentle lettuce. But there's just no way I'm throwing out beautiful, fresh food unnecessarily. I mean, it's it blows my mind. And, and even if we're on location, we always bring to go boxes and um, we have a line in front of us at the end of each scene or wrap and people are able to take home whatever was prepared in that scene. So something like the Chinese restaurant scene and Lutess and others, like we always make sure people can take home things. Tell me about the kitchen, because you apparently had this really gorgeous kitchen that was not typical for TV shows. I'm a lone wolf here in Boston, so I don't know what people are doing anywhere else. I just know for me, this was an incredible gift. I know, but you're no slouch. You've worked on some big stuff. I worked on some big stuff, but it's, we always just get scrappy about it. And the film, like, we're just always a bunch of, like, carnies and we're just scrapping. You know, we just pull it together. And in this case, they took the time to talk to me about how best to move forward in a truck versus a, a, a stationary kitchen. And, you know, from the pilot and having had the experience in a stationary space where myself and Rachel and Carolyn, who were my two assistants then, we just cooked communally and it brought and will continue to bring like a certain spirit to the food and food making. And it just allowed for a lot of creativity and organic flow from kitchen to set. And also was such a nice way of inviting people inside of the process so we would have people like, you know, bounce in and, and check on us or whatnot. So I wanted to continue that with the soundstage once we started filming the, the rest of the series. Paul Peabody, who was the head of the construction team, had just said, just take a piece of paper and draw what you think. And I did. And he passed it along and that ended up in a million other hands. And they approved it and they and they built it. And it was a sound you know, it was built no different than the rest of the sets where it was built and it was soundproof. And, you know, they installed sprinkler system. Um, they busted through a cement wall to give plumbing. And then with uh, a company called Westermans in uh, Worcester, Danny, who's great. Hi, Danny. He came in and we just talked about what best equipments to bring in that would be used. And we used every single inch and piece of equipment that was brought in and having something like a walk-in and a sanitation area with a dishwasher, like that's huge. I mean, we're usually with like bus buckets with like sanitation spray at the end of a scene sometimes, depend, you know, depending on where or what the job is. And that's just the elements of the job. But in this case, the production took very good care of us as a department and also just even in the food safety elements, not just for COVID, but just food handling and such that we had just an incredible once-in-a-lifetime experience. And you had them put in a window so you could see out and folks could see in. Why was that important to you? Because I've always worked in kitchens that had a window or um, or an open space, like open kitchens, and just how much information you can get from standing there and looking in to talk to the chefs or, or whatnot and to communicate. I thought, well, to be holed up looks feel really claustrophobic because we're always we're going to be in here a lot. So I just wanted to be able to look out and just see the motion of the floor and see, I can tell if something's about to get cut or if they're rolling or, or there's lunch or, you know, something's going on. But then what ended up happening is then people started looking in 
the light was always shining from the inside of the kitchen in this dark space. And I know when there are times that I would have to travel in between the stages on the soundstage, like it just made me so happy to see the lights on and see the activity going in because we were working nonstop. Food on film takes a lot of care and a lot of work. And I not for a minute wanted people to not see that because we we really put in 150% to the production of it. Did you make Julia's actual recipes for some of these scenes? When we see the crepe Suzette, when we see a roast chicken that she's serving her dad oh, and Paul. The best they're chicken, all... yes. All of her, even the croutons that the chickens served on top of, the pan juices, like everything is is from from her cookbook. 100%. The one thing that had to be a bit altered only because she didn't have such a recipe was the cooking class scene. It was scripted, I think, as shrimp puffs or shrimp turnovers. I, I don't remember, but looking through and, and the cookbook and not finding it, but just trying to come up with something. So I came up with, you know, the, the dough going into the, to the muffin tins and her putting the shrimp on top because ultimately that would be much more attractive for camera than just a triangle. So that is something that I took the liberties of finessing, but it's out of necessity, you know, out of necessity. And I worked with the writer on it. And that was really wonderful because I never, someone with like me doesn't get those opportunities. Christine, this is going to be like asking someone who's their favorite child, but did you have a favorite food scene in the series? I keep going back to Joyce Chen only because it was such a joyful uh, moment for the characters to be there celebrating. It was just so cheerful. And I think in the spirit of of Julie and Paul and and their friends, just like how they would sit and just enjoy their company, enjoy their food. And I know that Chinese food is one of Julia Child's favorite cuisines. And I most certainly will have to include, you know, any moment that I got to support Sarah in her preparations and f- food making on camera. Yeah, let's talk about Sarah for a second. Is it true you never saw Sarah Lancashire out of character? That you only knew her as Julia Child? I've n- I've only seen her as Julia. And that's okay, but man, my mind would be blown if if she was ever to walk in and I just see Sarah as Sarah. I mean, she, even before Julia, like I was a massive, because of watching Masterpiece and, and BBC and all of her work, I'm a huge fan of hers as an actress, so... I, I would probably faint, even though I've been around her for over many months. I get the sense that this project has really changed you and moved you as a person. It has, and I, I don't know how to articulate it quite yet, because I've started putting thoughts onto paper about it just so I can go back and understand it a bit more, because the whole time you're just so busy doing the job. And there were moments that I would be either on the stage or on the other side of the wall from Sarah and be like, this is wild. You know, this is crazy. I th- find my reflection on food and food making very personal. My history, you know, goes back to childhood with having s- such wonderful food makers. And then I became one and, and self-taught through the guidance of chefs that I worked for, but never really pieced it together. And then, you know, just like this slow progression into what is now a career at 50 years old, not saying it wasn't three years ago or two years ago, but you just sort of, as a freelancer, you just sort of bounce between jobs. You're like, I hope the film will ring. You know, and it does. And you just, you do it and you piece together just like Julia did. You piece together income 
sort of geared off of art making, visual art making, and then going into the culinary world. So I really have built up such an array of experiences through food and find that all the experiences are personal experiences. So when I come to set and and working on movies, like it is personal to me. And I might nerd out a bit more than someone someone else might, but I just take a lot of care and responsibility to that part of the storytelling. So I think moving forward after this incredible experience, just finding ways to continue what really has turned me on most, which is how food plays such an important part in a narrative, a part of the visual storytelling. Christine, this is the last question, and I'm so sad because I have loved talking to you. You're having dinner with Julia. What would you make, and who would you invite? This is so hard. Because I really would want to throw, like, a massive party, but I don't want to overwhelm her. I would want to recreate the cooking class scene with the beautiful lettuces and all these beautiful things from the farm. And I would want to include the recipe of hers that's sort of like uh, our fusion, she and I, of these, these shrimp things. And I would invite my team of incredible food makers. My assistant, Rachel Michael, was uh, Susan Spunkin's assistant for a number of years, and she's a mom to two awesome kids. My friend Carolyn White, I've known since she was nine, changed careers midlife from guidance counselor to chef. Sophia Aiolo, who is incredible at cooking as a mom of four. And then I have Brianna Borelli. I have Tony Silva. I have the PAs, Abby and, and Carly. Valerie Nin, of course. And I think if we could sit down together with Julia and share something that we created of hers, but just with a couple of, of our own personal twists, I just think that would be a nice gift for all of us. And I think Julia would have a serious blast with us because we're a lot of fun. And I think she would really appreciate our own individual paths to have gotten to the point of helping bring herself back to life and through her food that she loves so much. So that's my answer. Thank you so much to Christine Tobin for joining us. I don't know about you, but I definitely need a snack right now. That's it for this episode of Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, now streaming on HBO Max. Dishing on Julia is produced by Cherry Bomb Media. Thank you to the Cherry Bomb team, including executive producers Catherine Baker and Audrey Payne, special projects editor Donna Yen, associate producer Jenna Sadu, and editorial assistant Krista White. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. Special thanks to Stephen Toll and the team at CityVox for the audio production check back as we dish on the latest episode of Julia and chat with our cast and crew and special industry guests. To Julia. To us. Hacks is coming back and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.